ask the Lord's blessing for our last study. Dear Lord, thank you very much for this time in David's life, and we'd ask that you would give us a, a good completion to it. As he made good completion, we'd ask that you would uh, teach us something. In your son's name, amen. Okay, we're in the last bit of David's life. How many years this covers is hard to tell because there aren't that many you know, other than last week when we covered the problems with Absalom and, and uh, all those, uh, diff those internal, inside the family difficulties. Otherwise, you just got a few moments, and years and years and years go by without, um, without information. So you don't know quite where some of these events happen. In 2 Samuel 21, um, is a story that it seems brutal to us. Now there was a famine in the days of David for three years, year after year, and David sought the face of the Lord. And the Lord said, there is blood guilt on Saul and on his house because he put the Gibeonites to death. Now, we don't actually have the story of Saul putting the Gibeonites to death. Um, in Saul's career, we assume that he had from this reference. The Gibeonites were not Jews. Uh, Gibeon, as you maybe can tell from your map, is just north of Jerusalem by a few miles, less than 10. And when Joshua, in the Joshua 9, I have the reference off to the side, Joshua was conquering the land and everybody was getting wiped out, the Gibeonites said, okay, what are we going to do? Well, let's go send an embassy to Joshua, and we'll pretend we're from a long way off. So they got artificially worn out clothes and worn out shoes and worn out everything and showed up at Joshua's camp, Joshua, thinking they were someplace he would never get to because they had traveled so far, struck a deal with them, became their ally, became, had got a treaty with them, and it turns out they were right next door. So he keeps the deal. He says, okay, we won't, but you will, be, you will be servants for the Jews for the rest of the day. So the Gibeonites are not Jewish people. They are Amorites, as it says right here. And they had been, in that alliance, been protected. Uh, Joshua had made a deal not to um, harm them. Saul, being, you might say, ethnocentric, had thought, sought to slay them for the zeal for the people of Israel and Judah. So David said to the Gibeonites, What shall I do for you, and how shall I make expiation that you may bless the heritage of the Lord? The Gibeonites said to him, It is not a matter of silver or gold between us, and Saul or his house, neither is it for us to put any man to death in Israel. And he said, What do you say that I shall do for you? They said to the king, The man who consumed us and planned to destroy us so that we should have no place at, in all the territory of Israel, let seven of his sons be given to us so that we may hang them up before the Lord at Gibeon on the mountain of the Lord. The king said, I will give them. So David turns over seven descendants of Saul, um, two grand, five grandsons, and, and in your... In your um, uh, on the back of your, if you have your map, on the back of this, it has them, the Gibeon seven, down here, uh, two named sons of Rizpah, Saul's concubine, and Armoni and Mephibosheth, different Mephibosheth. Just when you thought you got used to a name, now they throw another, exactly the same one in there. Um, a different Mephibosheth, and five unnamed sons of Saul's daughter, Mirab. It makes it clear that David doesn't hand over Mephibosheth, the son of Jonathan, because he had had covenant with Jonathan. He wasn't going to um, disturb that. So Mephibosheth, Jonathan's son, doesn't get handed over. The other, these other seven do, and they hang him. And God has said there's a blood guilt that has to be expiated. David finds out what it's going to take, and he pays it out. Now, the, there's a tenderness in the story. Rizpah, the, the concubine, um, goes out in the night and plants herself by the hung bodies at Gibeon. 
and keeps the animals and the birds away from the corpses for days and nights and for days and nights and for days and nights. Kind of a, uh, a mother's love or kin love or whatever, whatever it was. David finds out about it, so he then goes and gets Saul's and Jonathan's bones from um, Jabesh Gilead, where they had rescued his body from being hung at Mount Gilboa, and uh, brings them and gets the bodies, the bones here, and buries them all at um, uh, in their homeland, I believe in Benjamin, in the tomb of Kish's father. So they, they finally get a decent burial. But it then says, and after that, God heeded supplications for the land. So we're not quite, you know, we, we're with, our, with our consciousness of what's good government, that doesn't sound like it. That doesn't sound like you grab seven people just because they're related and have them hung by the enemies of the family. Um, how, you ask yourself, can it be right? Uh, well, it seems like on the surface that it's expected. Nobody, see, nobody complains about their rights being violated. Um, there's a tragic aspect. The Bible seems to stress that with Rizpah's reaction <clears throat> to it. Uh, her showing fidelity to the family, which David seems to recognize. But David doesn't say, there's nothing David did do anything wrong. Not in David's mind. And the Gibeonites weren't wrong for asking for it. And the famine was there because of the blood guilt, because of what Saul had done. And it needed to be like much of the law of Moses, eye for eye, tooth for tooth. He killed us and wanted to eliminate us, seven of his descendants, uh, which can wipe out whole lines. I mean, you're, you're looking at <clears throat> the house of Saul almost being annihilated because of this loss. Um, We are sometimes, we sometimes mix up John Locke as one of the apostles. We um, think that somehow because human political theory has developed into a more, you might say, equitable and what we would call just circumstance, we think that it is somehow a moral good that someone's life not be taken in this regard. Um, we do take life, and it's getting to the point now where in the modern mind, taking the life of, um, of a uh, combatant is somehow viewed as a great evil, kind of a necessary evil. Rather than saying, no, you're taking the life of a combatant, you're, you're killing somebody, but you ought to be killing them. Um, our, our mindset, and I'm not arguing the, those points, I'm saying that our mindset as Christians, we don't cause, the Bible doesn't cause trouble for us. We cause trouble for the Bible. We go through shifts in culture where certain softnesses creep in that we think we confuse softness with righteousness. And we, not, can't, we can't be sure that's the case. Now, that doesn't mean that every grotesque thing described in the scriptures, sometimes it's really bad. And just because it's in the Bible didn't make it good. But in a situation like this, where God seems to be on the side of killing these people and getting this right and taking care of, and I'll listen to your prayers when this is done, okay, we've got to somehow deal with that. Uh, C.S. Lewis, we covered it last night in uh, Till We Have Faces, where Lewis talks about it. he's trying to raise the, you might say, the profile of paganism in the Christian mind until we have faces. And he makes an argument in Christian apologetics that, that religions are either thick or clear. And the ancient pagan, orgiastic, ecstatic, you know, sacrificial religions are thick. And the modern Buddhism and, and ethical Christianity, those are clear. He says, well, if there's any real religion out there, it's going to be both thick and clear. It's going to have both those elements. It's this nitty-gritty, almost grotesque reality of the God. At the same time, this real high, um, uh, clear, distinct element to it. 
whether Lewis is right or not, we sometimes have to face up to something like this and just to, and accept it and go, okay, all right, I will be the one having to go through some changes. I'm not going to spend my time trying to make David having done something else or Yahweh having thought something else. Right following that, there's a war with the Philistines. It says in this, just in this, the only reason this paragraph is there because it lets us know that David grew weary in verse 15 in the battle. And there's this giant there, a descendant of the giants, like Goliath, who is, thoughts, thinks to kill, kill David. And Abishai um, kills the giant. And the, then the soldiers say, okay, David, you're not going to war anymore. You're getting too old. Um, you shall no more go out with us to battle, lest you quench the lamp of Israel. He is getting on. Now, he dies at 70, but he's lived a hard life. And so we don't know really how close this is to his to his death, but it's close enough that he is not the competent warrior that he had been. At the end of that chapter, he's in this section, he goes back and forth. He'll be jumping in and out to lists of the deeds of David's mighty men, various uh, soldierly exploits. And he killed 300 men with a cock's goad. You know, that sort of thing. And he killed an Egyptian, a handsome man. You know, there's a, that kind of just small, you know, things that Benaiah would do or some other Hebrew-sounding name would do. In chapter 22 of 1 Samuel, and I don't have this the whole thing in here, it would have, it's basically a long 51-verse psalm. Uh, it's, its place in the record is sort of odd. It's sort of a combination psalm. It has a lot of things, if you read through it, of the, that echo portions of all, a lot of other psalms. Um, it's a psalm of praise of, of David's. I gave you the line here out of the first, the Lord is my rock and my fortress and my deliverer. And that's essentially what David is singing about in the psalm. And he has seen the deliverance of God, and there's this um, resting in God regarding it. Take a look at it when you have a chance. Um, again, it's not something... I went through it, and I had to mind something, because is this going to provide us with something about which in David's life we're going to be able to tack something down. No, it's essentially just a, a, a song of God's support of him and his righteousness before the Lord and God's deliverance. Um, so we, but this, this, this leads us right into, as it says, now these are the last words of David, verse 1 of chapter 23. The oracle of David, the son of Jesse, the oracle of the man who was raised on high, the anointed of the God of Jacob, the sweet psalmist of Israel. And it gives us this quote, which goes through verse 7. And it sort of, it, it floats out there all by itself. We don't know why the chronicler of the kings put this there, other than the fact we're getting to the end of David's life. And it's like a, um, a life, his life-affirming statement the Spirit of the Lord speaks by me. His word is upon my tongue. The God of Israel has spoken. The God, the Rock of Israel has said to me, when one rules justly over men, ruling in the fear of God, he dawns on them like the morning light, like the sun shining forth upon a cloudless morning, like rain that makes grass to sprout from the earth. Yea, does not my house stand so with God? For he has made me, with me, an everlasting covenant, ordered in all things and secure. For will he not cause to prosper all my help and my desire? But godless men are like the thorns that are thrown away, for they cannot be taken with the hand. But the man who touches them arms himself with iron in the shaft of a spear, and they are utterly consumed with fire. So it's, a, it's sort of a big poetic statement of who David is. A ruler fighting the ungodly, who has sought the mind of God, and we were looking at that over the past weeks, he inquired of the Lord. He is responsive to the Lord. He listens to the Lord when the Lord corrects him. He wants to make it right with the Lord, but he has made it wrong. Um, he is always seeking that place as a ruler, um, and we see this different from Absalom and his set, uh, the son after him, Adonijah, who wants to be king. Um, we see the difference. We saw the difference between David and Saul. They're, they're, David is an unusual king in his, 
in his humility before God. You know, his own mistakes are when his own his own rule of himself steps to the forefront and he decides to do something that he thinks he ought to do, be it Bathsheba or killing Nabal or, you know, whatever it is he thinks he ought to be doing. As soon as he steps forward and doesn't have God at the front, he fails. Um, and we see that this common thread in other rulers, we see it today in politicians, we see it anybody who is trying to get ahead. There are those who want to uh, um, those who want to uh, um, be established by God. They want to rule, but the establishment is when one rules justly over man, ruling in the fear of God, he dawns on them like the morning light. That, that the state of rule, this is true, we say, well, I'm never going to be a ruler, I'm not running for office. Yeah, whether we men are going to be fathers, women are going to be mothers, we're going to, we're going to be uh, leading something. We're going to be affecting other people. Even if you never had kids, you would hopefully be in your community, a, a church community, uh, as, a, uh, <coughs> as someone to whom others looked for guidance. Whatever, because this all goes back to that idea of, we talked about it with Absalom, the, the, the desire to have more people subject to your will. And that, that is either going to be nobly done where you're in service to other people or it's going to be ignobly done where they are in service to you. And, and, because the, and then the decisions start to reflect more you than they reflect what will be godly service to the other people. So there's this, you know, David makes some, you might say, awful mistakes. He's a barbarian and he's a killing machine and he does things that we couldn't imagine doing but his his motive his um, the kind of like this kind of motto this kind of oracle regarding himself regarding the state of things is pretty emblematic of of what happens in his life and we ought to be considering it as well um, I gave a little bit at the end of that chapter, in chapter 23, there's this little situation where uh, in between, stacked in between reports about the deeds of David's mighty men, uh, again, there's a couple more of those. I left this one in not because it was, you know, meaningful other than perhaps echoing what we're, we were just talking about. He was thirsty after laying siege to some um, Philistines at Bethlehem, and he kind of muses that he was sure he's thirsty. He could sure use a drink of water from the well over there at Bethlehem, and so the three mighty men go out there and, you know, do something uh, Frank Miller-esque to the Philistines, grab the water, and take it back to David and present it to him. And, of course, he pours it out to the Lord and said, Far be it from me, O Lord, that I should do this. Shall I drink the blood of the men who went out at the risk of their lives? Therefore he would not drink it. These things did the three mighty men. So it was a, it was a tale of one of those the deeds of the mighty man is pretty remarkable. Uh, they fought their way through for a glass of water, you know, and and that kind of devotion to David, David's. Um, it's not that everybody's dying of thirst. Everybody is, and it's not one of those situations where, you know, they offer the king the last bit of water and he pours it out because there's not enough for everybody. That's kind of you know makes everybody crazy. But this was just, he was kind of, what did it say? Um, said longingly, oh, that someone would give me water to drink from the well of Bethlehem, which is by the gate. You know, it was just a kind of an off, seemed like an offhand remark. Um, and um, uh, they, they went to battle to get it. And that was, David's heart is with what other people. Now, sometimes we fault David for his, too ready mercy for his enemies. This is at least one situation where he was concerned that his own men had put themselves in harm's way just because he had, had a wish. Okay, now we get down to business. Now we get down to a problem. Now we have a problem. Now the Bible starts to give us fits. Chapter 24, again, the anger of the Lord was kindled against Israel and he incited David against them saying, go number Israel and Judah. Now this is the story down through the end of the chapter. This is the end of the book of Samuel. Um, 
of the census that David takes. It's a weird, weird story. And it's weird first verse on. I have the Chronicles passage, 21. It says, Satan stood up against Israel and incited David to number Israel. In Kings, it says, and the anger of the Lord was kindled against Israel, and he incited David against them. Okay, first problem. David goes out and does it. He asked Joab to do it. Joab goes, what are you thinking, basically? Joab knows it's bad. May the Lord, verse uh, 3, may the Lord your God add to the people a hundred times as many as there are, while the eyes of my Lord the King will still see it, but why does my Lord the King delight in this thing? So the, 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 there's a there's a for a man like Joab to have a conscience, you know, we, we're sometimes been concerned about him. Um, something's up, okay. One, we got Satan and Chronicles. We got God and Kings, God and Samuel. It's a military census. We know this because of the results. The results come back. Eight hundred thousand valiant men who drew the sword. Yeah, it wasn't how many people. It was how many soldiers. That may help us out some. So Joab takes the census. It says in Chronicles 21.6 here on the side, he did not include Levi and Benjamin in the numbering, for the king's command was abhorrent to Joab. But the Lord, but God was displeased with this thing and he smote Israel. And that's where we get a problem, okay? Because if Samuel's right and the Lord incited him, and then the Lord got angry. You know, how, you know, how do we do this? How do we, how do we, uh, how do we uh, process that? And then David's conscience bothers him, verse 10. But David's heart smote him after he had numbered the people. And David said to the Lord, I have sinned greatly in what I have done. Now it's beginning to sound, content-wise, as the story moves on, that the Chronicles account is probably right. And Satan stood up against Israel and incited David to number Israel. That, that, that sounds like, okay, and uh, this is really wrong, and Joab's going, this is really wrong, we shouldn't be doing this. And then David goes, oh, I did it, what did I do, this is really wrong, I'm sorry, God's, God's upset, um, I have done very foolishly. So how do we deal with that, apart from what happens, I mean, we, what do you think the problem is with the census, uh, the military census? Does your conscience give you any fits about that? The yeah, no vanity of counting up your power, your wealth, your mm -hmm. ascribing it to yourself, not to God. Mm -hmm. That's a possibility, or trusting in the arm of flesh to say, how many battalions do I have? That's what's really, that's how I know how I feel. Rather than my trust in God, I count up how much money I have in the bank. Uh, now I feel better. Who is the story where... He said, no, that's too many men take... Gideon. Gideon, yeah. Yeah. Yeah, where well, he ends up making it very impossible for them to win. <laughs> uh, but here, you know, it's not like censuses had been before. You know, Moses had a census. The book of Numbers is called Numbers for that reason. Um, there's nothing wrong with counting up the people. There seems to be something to this incitation back in verse 1. Now I'm going to give you some possibilities. One, Satan is not mentioned in the Old Testament but three times, this being one of them. Job mentions him, this, and Zechariah. Uh, Satan, in a vision, standing at the right hand of Joshua the high priest to accuse him before the angel of the Lord. In Job, you know, the, you know the story with Job. This is the other one. Now, it could be that the word like he had said, David himself had used the name Satan to speak of uh, Abishai last week as, why are you a Satan to me, an adversary? The word just means adversary. It could be that, that it's not the, the guy you know, because the guy just doesn't show up in the Old Testament that much. And 
But we see the word Satan and we, you know, I remember when I first saw an album by um, Santana, I, uh, I always felt a little nervous because it was too close to the name Satan, even mm -hmm. though it was just Carlos Santana. And it's not this, probably more Saint, Santa Ana probably. But, uh, um, but you have these sort of visceral responses to words like Satan. So it could just be the adversary, which doesn't, it doesn't change the disagreement, but it may help you understand it a little bit, because if God was, if you take the Samuel phrase, and the anger of the Lord was kindled against Israel, and his, his incitement is the incitement of the adversary, which is the, in this case, would be the Philistines. You know, that the Philistines are arrayed against David in something pretty continually, and perhaps the Philistines were um, just making their presence felt, and that incited David to sin, not because Satan whispers in his ear, why don't you uh, number the Israelites? It's like, you know, here's this, and your own pride, your own desire to secure yourself says, okay, I need to know how many battalions I have. Joab, go count up the people. So that if God is, is, is for whatever reason, the anger of the Lord was kindled against Israel, for whatever reason, unstated, something comes up that sets David off to, to set up this protective but trusting in the arm of flesh motivation. Now you say, well, Evan, I, are you, you sound like you're some modern rationalist that's explaining everything away. Can it be Satan? It could be Satan at the same time, because Satan actually was one of the gods of the Philistines. We know this because Jesus Christ ties Satan to Beelzebub. He says that these are the two. And Beelzebub, we know, was the god of Ekron, one of the five cities of the Philistines. So Satan, whatever career he had, if he we're talking about the personal god, it still may mean the same thing, that Satan, the god of Ekron, Beelzebub, had stood up to oppose Israel, and this incited David to, to, to count up his men, count up his troops. <clears throat> well, those are the possibilities. The, uh, I looked at the Septuagint, and the Septuagint does interpolate the name Satan in um, uh, the Samuel passage as well, but I think it's an interpolation. It's not, I don't think, in the original Greek text. Um, so, but it's an interesting thing to look at. Um, Chronicles will have been written later than Samuel. But again, there's so many scribal transmissions down through the years. We also could throw that in, that one of these is a scribal, but you'd have to be able to show what, you know, one other thing is a possibility, is the phrase, the anger of the Lord, may have been a way of referring to Satan. Remember, Satan wasn't, he was one of God's doers of deeds, you know, he, this, he may be the anger of the Lord. Um, but I, I don't have any evidence for that. So, but consider it, and look at it, look at it square in the face. Um, but whatever the case, David's guilty. The prophet Gad has come to him and, and with the message from the Lord. Thus says the Lord, verse 12, Three things I offer you, choose one of them, that I may do it to you. So Gad came to David and told him and said to him, Shall three years of famine come to you in your land? Or will you flee three months before your foes while they pursue you? Or shall there be three days pestilence in your land? Now consider and decide what answer I shall return to him who sent me. Then David said to Gad, I am in great distress. Let us fall into the hand of the Lord, for his mercy is great. But let me not fall into the hand of man. Now he doesn't seem to make it crystal clear, I think with Chronicles Soupy, that I'm choosing the pestilence, but because the famine is also sort of the hand of the Lord. But the hand of, uh, maybe he thought that the hand of man would be against them if they were in a state of 
a state of famine, they would be easy prey. But whatever the case, he seems to have picked the pestilence, but it's let me not fall into the hand of man. Remember, he's had a rough few years. He's been chased around the landscape by his own family. He's been chased for years by Saul. The, the Philistines have been after him. Everybody's after David. He's tired. He's old. He doesn't want to go to his grave in blood, you know. Um, um, so the Lord sent a pestilence upon Israel from the morning until the appointed time, and there died of the people from Dan to Beersheba 70,000 men. And when the angel stretched forth his hand toward Jerusalem to destroy it, the Lord repented of the evil and said to the angel who was working destruction among the people, It is enough. Now stay your hand. And get the impression that God cut it a little shorter than the three days. Although it says the appointed time, the angel still ain't done. And I like this. This is a great graphic novel scene, if you are a great movie CGI scene. Because the Chronicles account you have this angel stopping outside Jerusalem. He's really there. It's not like the ancient peoples, they called plagues angels. No, this angel's really there. And the angel of the Lord was by the threshing floor of Arun of the Jebusite. Then David spoke to the Lord when he saw the angel who was smiting the people and said, Lo, I have sinned and I have done wickedly. But these sheep, what have they done? Let thy, let thy hand, I pray thee, be against me and against my father's house. Um, he, he shifts his, he's seen 70,000 people die. He's afraid for his own life, but he knows his people are dying, and he was the one who sinned. And so his mood shifts from, let me not fall into the hand of men, to, Lord, punish me, punish my family. So there's, a, there's the heart of David you know, is, you know, you, you think the echoes of Hezekiah as well as long as bad things don't happen in my day, you know, they'll, they'll happen in my son's day, but let's not have it happen in my day. This angel of the Lord, angel of death, the plague, is hovering above the, it says in Chronicles, David lifted his eyes and saw the angel of the Lord standing between earth and heaven. So, off the deck by whatever levitation, and in his hand a drawn sword stretched out over Jerusalem. So whatever you want to picture the Grim Reaper as, you know, one of those sorts of angels, or maybe it's a more brighter Renaissance angel, but whatever the case, it's floating over the threshing floor of Arun of the Jebusite. Remember, this is a Jebusite city that he has conquered a few years back. Now this is up, well, we don't have a map of Jerusalem here. Um, at the time of David, Jebus and then Jerusalem was just that spur of land that came down to that point between the two valleys that came up. The city then built its way north um, and larger from there. Um, the threshing floor of Aruna is straight north of this city of David, this small walled uh, uh, city, and just, just north of it. The city is going to expand into that area. Um, but it's right outside the city. So this angel's floating over the deck with his sword out against him. God has just stopped him. That's all. He's not gone away. He's just stopped him. And Gad comes to David and says, Go, rear an altar to the Lord on the threshing floor of Arun the Jebusite. And when Arun went up to get Gad's word as the Lord commanded, when Arun looked down, he saw the king and his servants coming on to warn him. Now, in the Chronicles account, um, verse 20, it says, Now Ornan, it calls him Ornan rather than Aruna, was threshing wheat. He turned and saw the angel, and his four sons who were with him hid themselves. So this is not just a, this is a public, this is a public vision. This is not, this is not uh, just a private, what the prophet sees in his vision, what David sees in his guilt. This is what people see because it's there. Okay, the angels floating with a sword out above his threshing floor, and so they're hiding. David comes up, and Aruna said, verse 21, Why has the Lord the king come to his servant? David said, To buy the threshing floor of you in order to build an altar to the Lord, that the plague may be averted from the people. Then Aruna said to David, Let my lord the king take and offer what seems good to him. Here are the oxen for the burnt offering, and the threshing sledges, and the oaks of the oxen for the wood. All this, O king, Aruna gives to the king. 
And Aruna said to the king, The Lord your God accept you. And this is a great one of the best lines of David. And the king said to Aruna, No, I will buy it of you for a price. I will not offer burnt offerings to the Lord my God, which cost me nothing. That's just a that's that that that's that's pithy. That's right on point. That's so yeah, you don't and you, you I, and I've noticed that in various circumstances we used to give a scholarship out um, that was supported by parents of an ex-house resident and uh, give it to high school students. It was a lot of fun to give away money, free money to people, and a lot more fun because it was not our money. You know, <laughs> it was just fun. You know, it's like the the Congress. You know, it's like the president. He's it, giving away money. Um, you get all the credits, but you're not actually doing anything of yourself. Uh, and David recognizes that. He could have just said, yes, you're a righteous Aruna, thanks, we can do this now. And just oh, sacrifice the oxen with the sledges and the yokes as, as wood to burn it on. And, and it's a great... Uh, um, it's, a gr it's a great expression of devotion on David's part. Fire comes down from heaven. The Chronicles account lets you know that fire comes down from heaven. And... Um, on the altar of the burnt offering. And then the Lord commanded the angel and he put his sword back in its sheath. <clears throat> so what happens here is that out of this desperation, just north of the city, David stops the plague by offering a sacrifice on the threshing floor of Aruna. In Chronicles, here on page 23, in the, in the right-hand column, at that time, when David saw that the Lord had answered him at the threshing floor of Ornan the Jebusite, he made his sacrifices there. So, for the tabernacle of the Lord, which Moses had made in the wilderness, and the altar of burnt offering, were at that time in the high place at Gibeon. So that's about, again, about a little under ten miles north. But David could not go before it to inquire of God, for he was afraid of the sword of the angel of the Lord. This, this punishment had kept David from getting close to where he could go to, to deal with God at Gibeon. And here he was given under, by the prophet this privilege of, okay, just outside the city, just north of the city at this threshing floor, uh, God is taking your sacrifices. You can offer these sacrifices here. And so David now starts to do that. He has, well, basically what happens is the threshing floor of Arun of the Jebusite is the site of the temple. He has bought that site. It's a big stone area, because that's what threshing floors needed to be. It's a big flat stone area, and it now is owned by David, and that's where he had Solomon build the temple. So all, all the way down to the dome of the rock that's on it now, it's all on the threshing floor of Aruna, uh, from this moment. Um, Uh, the first verse of chapter 22 and then David said here shall be the house of the Lord God and here the altar of burnt offering for Israel in chapter 1 that was the end of 2nd Samuel um, where was that you were just I was reading in the column on the side it's still in the Chronicles Chronicles 22 on page 23 are you in page 23 it's the third page it's right there at the end of that First paragraph. Yeah. David's really old now. He's in his probably close to seventy. In our day, not that old. Seventy is the new forty. I don't know what fifty-seven is. Um, but it get a little situation. I didn't, didn't think there was any spiritual value in this. But Abishag the Shulamite, David couldn't get warm, and so they got this hot chick, and that's really all you can say. He got this really good-looking young girl to keep him warm at night. They didn't have sex. She was just a hot water bottle. It lets you know that in the first four verses of chapter 1 of 1 Kings. Um, and then it jumps in. Now, that is not... You say, well, what in the world? Is that just telling us information? She pops up later. She's important later. Um, we get into the situation where, in a lot of cases in antiquity... Kings, because there isn't an established political theory that everybody grants, and everyone in a monarchy situation is, it's a force, might makes right, 
uh, political uh, understanding, people went to great efforts to make sure they became king in such a way that they could support their kingship once the last king was dead. David's not dead. Adonijah, his son, wants to be king. So he sets about making himself king. And you get to see that very much like Absalom, says the first five, I will be king. And prepared for himself chariots and horsemen and 50 men to run before him, just like Absalom. His father had never at any time displeased him by asking, why have you done thus and so? Now, the story in, in the Septuagint, it reads, um, uh, David never checked Adonijah from doing this. Basically, he's not saying he never displeased him in his life. He's basically saying he never got in the way of these efforts. David doesn't, too old, doesn't know what's going on, whatever. Uh, nobody, nobody restrains Adonijah. Adonijah has an idea what he wants to be. He is taking action for toward it. Nobody is standing in his way. And it doesn't hurt that he was also a very handsome man. And he was born next after Absalom. Absalom's dead. Amnon's dead. They were both older than, older than um, he. And now he's next in line. He's good looking. He's ready. He's tanned. He's rested. And then he confers... And I just bolded that. He conferred. He does everything right. He registers for the primaries in all the states. He talks to Joab and Abiathar the priest, and they both sign up with him. So the commander of the army and the high priest. What more could you want? But Zadok the priest, and Benaiah the son of Jehoiada, and Nathan the prophet, and Shimei and Rei and David's mighty men were not with Adonijah. Adonijah sacrificed sheep, oxen, and fatlings by the serpent stone, which is beside Enrogel, and he invited all of his brothers, the king's sons, and all the royal officials of Judah, but he did not invite Nathan the prophet, or Benaiah, or the mighty men, or Solomon, his brother. Solomon's a young guy. He's one of the younger brothers. We don't know how old. Uh, he may have just been in his late teens, uh, maybe 20. But uh, uh, Adonijah is clear about who he's not inviting. Then Nathan said to Bathsheba, the mother of Solomon, Have you not heard that Adonijah, the son of Haggith, has become king, and David our Lord does not know it? Now therefore, come, let me give you counsel, that you may save your own life and the life of your son Solomon. Go in at once to King David and say to him, Did you not, my lord the king, swear to your maidservant, saying, Solomon your son shall reign after me, and he shall sit upon my throne? Why then is Adonijah king? Then, while you are still speaking with the king, I will come in after you and confirm your words. This is very Machiavellian. This is very... Uh, uh, this is courtroom and court intrigue, is what this is. Bathsheba knows, and this is very standard, the, the various wives of the harem were at, they're at risk because they're natural contenders for any next king. Happened many times in antiquity that all the women and the other sons of the king ended up dead suddenly um, after the next guy got into power. You had to kill them all. Happens with uh, Abimelech, son of Gideon. Kills all his brothers. Um... I think Cambyses does that in Persia. Kills all his brothers as soon as ever, anybody with any other claim. You had to secure the throne. And they know this. You want to stay alive, Bathsheba? What's interesting is Nathan is the guy that called David to account for sleeping with this woman. Seems now that they've struck a deal. They, they, they get on all right. They're on the same side. Uh, Bathsheba goes to the king, treats it this way. Then Nathan does come in and go, hey, did you know what was it? So it sort of reinforces for the old king. We don't have to assume that Nathan and Bathsheba are up to no good. We don't assume that David hadn't said he was going to give Solomon the throne. We assume that he that, that was uh, intended. It's up against the intentions of Adonijah and the intentions of David and probably God. And Nathan and Bathsheba are doing their best to make it happen. So they're going to rivet David's mind. He comes in accidentally and agrees with Bathsheba. Nathan does. David decides for Solomon. 
and decides, okay, throw this kind of party and let him ride on my mule and, and uh, all sorts of other things. All the while, Adonijah is partying with his friends just outside the city. Long live the king, um, Adonijah. Everybody saw their ticket was being written for advancement in the society. And all of a sudden, somebody goes, what's that noise? And it's the people of the city yelling, long live King Solomon, somewhere else outside the city. And everybody goes white, everybody gets disillusioned, and everybody runs away. Adonijah runs to the temple, or runs to the altar, and says he grabbed the horns of the altar and he pled with Solomon not to kill him. He said he'd be a good, he'd be a good, he'd play good citizen. Now, at this point, remember, Adonijah is doing this because David's almost dead. First Kings 2. When David's time drew near to die drew near, he charged Solomon his son. Now this next section, what Solomon does, or David has done at the end of his life. He has prepped Solomon, and we don't know where these various comments to Solomon occurred. I just put them together out of Chronicles and here out of Kings, um, assuming they were jumbled together somewhere in here long enough before, really surrounding the Adonijah moment, uh, maybe right after the Adonijah moment. But David has realized um, uh, that he's going to pass this on to Solomon. Solomon has been declared king, and so he says, Be strong and show yourself a man. Verse 4, that the Lord, keep the law of Moses, that the Lord may establish his word which he spoke concerning me, saying, if your sons take heed to their way and walk before me in faithfulness with all their heart and with all their soul, there shall not fail you a man on the throne of Israel. That was, and that's what he wants to pass on to Solomon. There's a few things he wants to pass on to Solomon. One is a people ready for him that will help him in his youth and experience. David also, having wanted to build the temple and being told he couldn't, he lets David know, Solomon know in Chronicles 22 here on the side that eh, you're young and inexperienced. I'm not allowed to do it. I would, as it says down lower, you have shed much blood and have waged great wars. You shall not build a house to my name because you have shed so much blood before me upon the earth. So he said, I've been banned for that reason. Um, you're young and inexperienced. Tell you what, I've got the land. I'm going to get all the materials together as well. I'm going to make this easy. It's not like you have to build a house, contract the whole thing. I'm going to help out. So David, in chapter 23 through 27, there's a long list of chronicles, long list of all the stuff he pulls together and all the roles and the, rich, and the workers and all the various things. that Everything is arranged to build this temple. And... He then speaks to, here in Chronicles 28 and 29, which I've inserted into the main text, he speaks to the people, everybody at once, all the leaders, all the people, and he's basically saying he wants them to, he wants to prepare their heart for the, for the temple of God. He says there in verse 1, for the palace will not be for man, but for the Lord God. So I have provided for the house of my God so far as I was able. Then he, then he asked the people of Israel, who then will offer willingly, consecrating himself today to the Lord? And then everybody gives this free will offering to help out in pulling together things for this temple. And when you get to finally the description in, 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 in uh, Kings of Solomon's temple, you begin to realize, oh yes, they spent a pretty penny on this. Uh, so it was more than the king's wealth, but the people were all contributing. David then addresses that with this... With this uh, uh, Prayer in verse 11. Thine, O Lord, is the greatness and the power and the glory and the victory and the majesty. For all that is in the heavens and in the earth is thine. Thine is the kingdom, O Lord, and thou art exalted as head above all. Both riches and honor come from thee, and thou rulest over all. In thy hand are power and might, and in thy hand it is to make great and to give strength to all. That's what we were talking about earlier when we had that oracle of David, which sort of summed up where he stood. As long as this is remembered, um, do we see it the same way? That all that is 
This is the sovereignty of God. This is all God's to give and take. The Lord gives, the Lord takes away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. This sort of idea is this great moment, this almost ecstatic moment for David. He's dying, he's passing this on, he's pulled all the gear together, he's speaking to the people, he's got a son to sit on the throne, and with this gift that the people have given, he says in verse 14, but who am I and what is my people that we should be able thus to offer willingly? For all things come from thee, and of thy own have we given thee. Not just I will not give that which, I will not sacrifice that which cost me nothing, it all belongs to God in the first place. I were only given him back his. For we are like strangers before thee, and sojourners as all our fathers were. Our days on the earth are like a shadow, and there is no abiding. It basically, what is man? <laughs> you know, what is your life? It is but a vapor, as it says in James. And you said that would be a handy thing for learning this kind of element in your pieties when you think of the sovereignty of God and you and the problems that occur in your life when it's you, one of the basic ways is to remind yourself of this. Um, you are a vapor. You are. You don't have anything. All your rights that you demand, all your fairness that you insist on, you're squabbling over that which isn't even yours. This is all the Lord's and we better render to him. He will lend it to us for a time. He will let us use and let us give it back to him. Our, our Lord, our God, in all this abundance that we have providing for building thee a house for thy holy name comes from thy hand and is all thy own. In verse 17, and I like this because it, it, it stretches that giving moment from David's giving to the people's giving recognition of who owns it anyway. Then he says, I know, my God, that thou triest the heart and hast pleasure in uprightness. In the uprightness of my heart I have freely offered all these things. And now I have seen thy people who are present here offering freely and joyously to thee. Okay, I, I know what I am feeling. And I look. they seem to be feeling the same thing, Lord. O Lord, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Israel, our fathers, keep forever such purposes and thoughts in the hearts of thy people and direct their hearts toward thee. He said, down underneath the surface, you can, you can give a stemwinder of a speech, everybody can reach into their wallet and pop in 10 bucks, pop in 10,000 bucks, whatever they're giving. And David wants to be sure that, Lord, we know that you look at the heart too. And I think my heart's there. And I think these people's heart is there. Could you keep it there for us so that we would always be directed to thee? And then they anoint David, son of Solomon, son of David, king for the second time. Remember, he got anointed back when the Adonijah thing went down. Now, this is where David dies. He dies in Chronicles. He dies in Kings. There's nothing much to his death. We don't, we don't go... And he, you know, got tuberculosis or he, some such disease. It says, and David slept with his fathers. But right before he dies, he talks to Solomon. And verses 5 through 9 of 1 Kings 2, which I don't have here, David says, I'm going, Solomon, my son, could you do a couple favors for me? I'd like you to take out two people. Bless a third. Barzilli, Barzillai, the guy who helped him on the other side of the Jordan when he was at Mahanaim on the run from Absalom, he wants him always to get a you know, seat at the king's table, basically. Not the smorgasbord, the actual king's table. And uh, there's two others, Joab and Shimei. I, uh, I'd like them dead. <laughs> That's basically it. I don't want these guys going to their grave in peace. I want them dead, and I want you to figure out how to do it. That's the that's the sort of touching words. Last words, father, son, kill these guys. It's like the Godfather, um, and it's a uh, and David knows he promised Shimei that he wouldn't kill him. When Shimei apologized for throwing rocks and kicking dust and calling him all sorts of names and cursing him, and then apologized, and they said, "Okay, I won't kill you." And he holds to that. He says, "I I can't kill him. You'll figure out a way, Solomon." I don't want him, I don't want him dying peacefully. 
Now, how it goes down, what this is, is what Bathsheba and Nathan were fearing were going to happen to Bathsheba and Solomon. Solomon is stepping up, young king, further down the line, not one of the earlier sons. He's, um, he's in danger. And he's got to establish his throne. Now what happens right after David's dead, Solomon is wobbly on the throne, he needs to establish, he's got this command to kill these two people, and what's he going to do? The last part of this bit on David's life, this is the roundup of David's life, is Adonijah comes to Bathsheba, who has become quite a central court figure. She's the mother, she's the queen mother now. Very prominent um, um, old lady. Well, maybe she probably might not be that old. Maybe she's in her 40s. Um, and plump. I'd like to picture her plump. <laughs> waddling. Waddling through the harem. Um, Adonijah comes to her and says, Hey, um, you've got the ear of the king. Could you see if I could get Abishag the Shunammite as a wife? She's hot. David never knew her. She was, she's a virgin. Could I get it? She says, I'll see what I can do. Adonijah, you just lost the throne. It's a small thing. She goes to Solomon and goes, hey, why don't we give Adonijah and Ab Abishag? Solomon says, verse 22, answered his mother, and why do you ask Abishag the Shunammite for Adonijah? Ask for him the kingdom also, for he is my elder brother, and on his side are Abiathar the priest and Joab the son of Zariah. All he needs is to be married to the last king's last wife. All of a sudden, you've just handed him another chess piece to play out the game. He's going to be married to the last king's last wife. At our permission. And he knows what Adonijah is up to. Bathsheba is just, you know, she's been a court woman for a while, but she's not ready for this. Solomon has him killed. Outright. Just goes up and has Benaiah cut him down because he was trying it was, it was treason is what it was now here's a theory that I you can take it to where you want I think this is what the Song of Solomon is about the reason the Song of Solomon is in the Bible it's about a Shulamite woman the words are etymologically close we're not quite sure if they're not identical it's a story of Solomon adding a 61st wife into his harem. And it's propped up as this great love story. I think it's a political one. Now, I think it's all true, but I think it's a political. You know, you, you've got to turn around and, okay, who's going to marry Abishag? If I don't marry her, one of my other brothers, you know, somebody's going to marry this woman. She's a virgin. She's... Beautiful, and she's David's last bed companion. Um, and so if he marries her, he's going to want to have it be this grand, this grand marriage. It's a marriage poem. It's a song or a play that's being acted out. And I think that, that it's public nature. It's what it's claiming. It's probably claiming all this high sexuality and high romance because... Um, Solomon needed to shore up, tie up this loose end as well. David, I mean, Solomon does go a long way to tie up the loose ends. Abiathar realizes what he's done. He gets deposed on the basis and sent off home, which brings about the fulfillment of the prophecy out of early second, first Samuel, where the house of Eli is cursed because of Eli's sons being evil. And these, the, here's the line, Eli, Phinehas, Ahitub, Ahimelech, Abiathar. So Phineas died at, this, you know, at the time when the Ark of the Covenant was taken, but uh, you can look up the passage, but, but it said your house is going to get eliminated, and this was the fulfillment of that. And, uh, Solomon, not killing Abiathar, but removing him from the priesthood. Joab hears what just happened. He realizes it's all following. Here's Adonijah dead. Abiathar has been removed from the priesthood. He's next. He grabs the horns of the altar. Benaiah is sent to kill him. He says, come on out. And he says, I'm not coming out. You can kill me in here. But I says, okay, what do I do? He goes back to Solomon. He says, what do I do? He says, go cut him down there. And so they killed him there, grabbing the old horns of the altar. 
And Joab uh, finally gets his uh, comeuppance. The phrase is, he attacked and slew with the sword two men more righteous and better than himself. That was Abner and Amasa, two people he killed because of petty personal vindictiveness, not military necessity. And he killed them when they thought there was peace. He killed them sneakily. It was murder. And uh, so the, 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 that was what David wanted, the, him to serve for the blood of those two men um, that he had killed so illegitimately. And the last thing here is that uh, the king has Shimei say, okay, you can live, but you can't leave town. If you ever leave town, I'll kill you. Three years goes by, Shimei forgets. Two of his slaves run away. He goes to get them. He gets arrested. Solomon says, I told you. You swore to me. And they kill him. He left town. And the kingdom, the last verse, was established in the hand of Solomon. That's what it takes. You know, there's this purging, uh, this neeking up. This, uh, um, uh, the other sons of David all supported Solomon, the ones that were left. We gather that quite a few must have died. But uh, uh, this cleared the decks and it put Solomon in the place to have a golden age, very unlike David's. Um, David clinging to power, trying to build a power structure on top of the first wobbly king of Israel. And then he comes along as a secondary less wobbly, uh, but more righteous. And then Solomon comes along and has a secure a grant of his kingship. And that's the end of David's life. Let's thank God. Dear Lord, thank you very much uh, for David. He's, a, he's an interesting guy. And we, uh, we love to get to know him in glory. Um, we... Uh, see in ourselves the things he struggled with and we would like to see things in ourselves that he also had that that devotion to you um, that sought you inquired of you throughout his life this we ask in your son's name amen